Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Mark, welcome back. Well, first things first. I think I'll begin with a joke. All right. All right, so I'm running out of jokes that have any kind of philosophical relevance whatsoever. <laughs> but... but uh, so we've kind of you know, we've moved, moved through the best ones, and now you, know, you, you have the rest. But, but I think this does have some philosophical relevance. Uh, it deals with words, the, the, the importance of words, uh, and especially the use of words to attain some good end that we seek. So maybe it's even a wise use of words. Okay? So this pertains to the material we discussed last time. Here it goes. It's short. Two Jesuit novices both wanted a cigarette while they prayed. They decided to ask their superior for permission. The first asked, but was told no. A little while later, he spotted his friend smoking and praying. Why did the superior allow you to smoke and not me, he asked. His friend replied, because you asked if you could smoke while you prayed. And I asked if I could pray while I smoked. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Yeah, the use of words to attain a good end. Uh, I guess if, if you're a good end you've established is smoking and praying. Yeah. Uh, today our agenda is as follows. I'd like to recap uh, very briefly, as briefly as possible, uh, the content of our last lecture, the last time we met. And then I'd also like uh, to use that as a segue into discussing some of the questions that were asked of me following our last lecture, because I think our, some of the discussions were interesting uh, and, and relevant and um, uh, led me to some considerations and some of the fruits of, of those discussions are, are here on the board for what it's worth. I'll anticipate our discussion by mentioning uh, that the top work is, is a work on Boethius. I think it's arguably the best in the English language, if you want to read more about Boethius. So Henry Chadwick is a brilliant scholar. This is a scholarly work, maybe not necessarily one for beginners, but if, if you want a good scholarly uh, uh, account of the life and work of Boethius, I think this is the place to start. Uh, there's also other works that are, if you will, in the same genre as, as the Consolation of Philosophy that deal with the same themes. Uh, especially uh, this theme that we'll discuss a, a little while later, that it's actually in bad fortune. Okay? When things go awry, uh, that it becomes enlightening. Okay? There's a wonderful quote by Lady Philosophy that I distributed last time uh, that uh, says something to this effect, uh, that good fortune deceives, but bad fortune enlightens. Okay, it's very interesting, I think a provocative and interesting quote. And a theme that deals, uh, there's a whole series of books that deal with this theme. Okay, even contemporary works. Uh, the work of uh, Walter Chisick, a Jesuit priest. Okay. Uh, but he wrote two works, With God in Russia and He Leadeth Me. They, they kind of go 
together. He was uh, interned in the, in the gulag, in, uh, and uh, you know, there's good, great works about the gulag. Solzhenitsyn uh, also has, has written some uh, you know, magisterial works on the atrocities of the gulag. But, but a Catholic priest here who spent time there writes these very interesting works. Uh, the first detailing more of, of what happened in the gulag, his experiences, and the second with the spiritual transformation that occurred in his own life through the suffering he endured there. Uh, another work is written by a, a Jew uh, who some religious sister told me one time might have converted to Catholicism on, on his deathbed. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but he was a, a very uh, a wonderful Jew and a great psychologist. Uh, Victor Frankl, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning uh, after he uh, spent time in uh, uh, concentration camps and developed even a, a, a therapy uh, logotherapy that was based on man's search for meaning. And he used meaning as an interpretive key to understand humans' experience and also why some people thrived or survived at least uh, in the concentration camps and why others did not. Uh, and finally, Oscar Wilde, who is, I know, a Catholic convert, uh, wrote the work De Profundis. And of course, De Profundis is based on the, the psalm, I think it's 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Uh, one of the uh, kind of a potential psalm. Uh, he wrote this work, and there's parts of it, and I, I'll say parts of it just detail some of his misfortune, and it becomes a little monotonous. But he has wonderful reflections on the profundity uh, of suffering and how that has this, this uh, effect of enlightening uh, man who, who, whose fortune turns ill. Okay, so those are great works. So I'll, I might return to them later when I discuss some questions that were asked last time. Uh, but first, I'd like to, to again, recap things. Uh, we'll review those questions and hopefully finish this, this first packet discussing uh, the first three books of the Constellation of Philosophy. We'll take our break. Uh, I hope all that will be achieved. We'll see. And then uh, we'll turn to uh, those topics that I mentioned last time that we'll cover uh, why uh, Boethius says that the good suffer and the evil seem to prosper, how, how we can resolve that, that, uh, that, that phenomena or the phenomena that seems to attain. And then we'll look at, at book five, the reconciling of divine foreknowledge and free will. So that's it's an ambitious undertaking, but, but with God's help, uh, hopefully we'll cover most of that, if not all, today. Now, I'd like to review, uh, again, a little bit of what we discussed last time, even just to get our uh, philosophical juices flowing again, I think a short review will be uh, very helpful. Now, again, we, we talked about who Boethius was. Uh, not only does he have a great name, you know, Anicius, Sever, uh, no, no, Manlius Severinus, Boethius, excellent name. Uh, he, he is an extraordinarily influential person in the history of ideas. Uh, he's, in, he's important, first of all, as a conduit. Uh, between the, the wisdom of ancient Greece, having studied Greek himself, he, he translated a lot of the important works of the Greek philosophers into Latin. And uh, during a, a dark age that would set in uh, after his death, uh, the, the works of Aristotle and Plato that, that, we, that, that were available to scholars, mostly in monasteries, uh, a lot of them, the logical works of Aristotle, uh, were only there because of the work of, and the labor of Boethius. Uh, so he's important in transmitting the ideas of the Greeks 
to the Latin-speaking world. That's something that makes him extraordinarily influential. Another thing that made him important is in Boethius, we see a first-rate philosopher who is also a first-rate believer. Okay, and that's important. Uh, you know, in Fetus Eratio, you know, in, the, in, the, in the prologue, uh, if I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this, but uh, I don't know if you've read this, the, this great encyclical letter of, of John Paul II. I recommend it. That uh, deals with philosophy and theology, faith and reason, how they interact and benefit one another. Uh, and he speaks of faith and reason as two wings on the sa- of the same bird uh, that allow the, the mind and soul of man to ascend to God. Okay, it's beautiful. And we see Boethius doing just that. Okay? In his person, he embodies philosophy and theology living in harmony and allowing an individual to grow in holiness, to grow in wisdom, and, and, and to uh, expedite and assist him in his return to God. And I think that is extraordinarily important and something that hopefully we can also replicate in our own life. Now, that's something about his person. Uh, we also discussed uh, you know, these, these questions, okay, and, and this makes him relevant again to us today. He asked the perennial questions, the timeless questions that every man has to ask and hopefully has, comes up with some answer during his lifetime. The questions of who am I? Where am I going? Okay. Do, is there an end or a purpose, in other words, to my life? Is there a God? Where do I come from? If there is a God, what kind of God is, is he? Is he good? And then if God is good, how come there seems to be evil in the world? How can we reconcile that? And if there is God and evil, is God in some ways, because he knows everything, even what we're going to do, does that make God in some sense the cause of evil? Or does evil come from some other source? Okay, these are difficult questions. Questions that hopefully we'll examine today and, and that Boethius asked and provided answers to. Okay, so that's part of his relevance. And then we discussed wisdom. Okay, we discussed what wisdom is. Okay? And we first looked at just secular definitions. Okay? Uh, we took from the great uh, source Wikipedia. Uh, and, and other, other, other uh, you know, important uh, uh, secular uh, sources. And, and we found that there is something there. Uh, there's something, they're getting at something that is true. Uh, it, it, they, they point out that wisdom is an understanding of the higher things, of, of kind of higher, more important things. It's an elevated sort of knowledge, not trivial. And then it also said that it helps us act right. And, and expediently and, and judiciously attain certain ends that we've set for ourselves. Now, we find here uh, you know, a little bit of the remnants of a good definition of, of, of wisdom and what it is. Now, I have uh, from this copy that you might have bought at uh, the bookstore here that, that supports the Institute or elsewhere, a great quote on uh, wisdom from Boethius. And, and, it, and this is what it is. And, and listen, you can hear, again, affirming wisdom is knowledge of higher things, and also knowledge that has some practical ramifications. It allows us, in knowing the higher things, to order correctly our lives and the decisions we make. 
Okay, it reads as follows. This love of wisdom or philosophy, that's what the etymology, that's what it means, philosophy, the love of wisdom, is the illumination of the intelligent mind by that pure wisdom defined as the self-sufficient living mind and soul, a primeval reason of all things, and is a kind of return and recall to it. Okay, so from Boethius' perspective, it, 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 wisdom in some ways originates from God and calls us to return to him. So that it seems at once the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of divinity, and the friendship of that pure mind. So that this wisdom gives to the whole class of minds the reward of its own divinity and returns it to its proper constitution and purity of nature. I mean, it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. I don't expect you would write that all down. But, but there, is, there is some important aspects. Okay? It's a wisdom from on high. It's not a wisdom in some ways that, that at least for Boethius, that originates uh, from corporeal things, material things. But it's a wisdom that is eternal and on high from God. It's timeless, it's transepical, transcultural, it's unchanging and transformative. It moves us to be united to it and to return to it as our source. And being made in the image and likeness of God, that is our nature, it, it rouses us the desire to return to that purity, the purity from which we came. It's a beautiful, beautiful definition. Now, we also looked at what St. Thomas has to say. Now, let me make one more distinction here. Uh, wisdom for Boethius is slightly different than wisdom uh, for St. Thomas, but, but, but they're very, very similar. Okay? Uh, there is, again, for Boethius, St. Augustine, the earliest Christian philosophers, uh, they didn't always make a fine distinction between supernatural wisdom and natural wisdom. In other words, wisdom that comes from God and wisdom that can be attained by our reasons, by our reason, I'm sorry, without the assistance of God directly. Okay, so the wisdom we can get about our world philosophically, that is reflecting on it, and even the mundane objects that we see, tables and chairs and, 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 and grass and the like, that lead us ultimately, philosophers believe, St. Thomas believed, that even knowing grass, seeing its mutable nature, its dependence on other things for its existence, he thought he could derive an argument that would philosophically and rationally point back to God as the origin of all things that do not exist by their very nature. Okay? But he said, above this there is a higher wisdom, a wisdom from God himself that gives man's mind Knowledge that he cannot attain on his own. It's gratuitously given by God. And that distinction is what St. Thomas adds to our discussion of wisdom. Now, he speaks of wisdom in, two, in a couple different places. He speaks of it, now the Summa Theologiae, the great work uh, of Thomas, is divided into three parts. And to make things more confusing, the second part is divided into two parts. And so this is the first part of the second part of the Summa that deals with the virtues. Okay? 
and, and so does the second part. Actually, exclusively, the second part of the second part deals with the virtues. But the intellectual virtues are dealt with in the first part of the second part. Okay, the intellectual virtues. Okay, and wisdom is one of those, along with science and understanding. Now, he spends more time talking about the cardinal or moral virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. But he also speaks of the, of the intellectual virtue uh, that is wisdom. And he says the following. St. Thomas speaks about wisdom in the following way here. He says, it is knowledge of conclusions through their highest causes. Okay? And so philosophy, particularly metaphysics, is properly designated as wisdom since it considers truth of the natural order, that is not supernatural, according to his, its highest principles. Okay, that's what he has to say there about intellectual, uh, the intellectual virtue that is wisdom. However, in the second part of the second part, question 45, he deals with the wisdom that we all received through our confirmation. Okay, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You're familiar that we received wisdom. It's usually mentioned as the first gift of the Holy Spirit. And here he had the following to say about this kind of wisdom. Okay. He also says okay, that it belongs, uh, it gives us knowledge of the higher causes. But he distinguishes it from this intellectual virtue. Okay. He says, in this intellectual virtue... It can be attained by human effort, whereas the latter, the virtue of wisdom given by the Holy Spirit, descends from above, quoting James 3.15, on like manner, it, okay, so it's from on high, okay, and it gives us wisdom of God from God, okay, and this allows us then to order our lives, okay, and here he distinguishes this supernatural wisdom from faith in the following way, in his reply to objection two. It's very interesting. On like manner, it differs from faith, since faith assents to the divine truth in itself. So by faith, we know divine truth, mysteries about God and who he is as triune, etc. But wisdom is slightly different. Whereas wisdom, it belongs to the gift of wisdom to judge according to the truth. Hence, the gift of wisdom presupposes faith because a man judges well what he knows. Okay? So, like Solomon, we ask for the gift of wisdom. So we can not only know the higher things as we know them through faith, but we can then apply them in our lives. Because, as you remember, okay, and this is a principle we talked about last time. Now, uh, Try this on for size. It actually, I think, maybe I've mentioned this in a previous talk, but it's something I think makes sense even if the definition's a little bit strange sounding. Thomas says that the final cause, which is the end or goal that we seek in any action, is the first in the order of intention and the last in the order of execution. Seems peculiar, but all he means there is the goal initiates the movement. We act for a purpose. The goal of coming here today explains why you got out of bed, possibly. You might have got out of bed anyway. It might not explain even why you ate. 
Uh, maybe you didn't eat because you wanted to take advantage of the, the, the food at the back of the table here. Who knows? Uh, but, but, but it does explain your dry, getting in your car and coming over here. Okay? And so the end initiates our movement. And so it's the first in the order of intention. Okay, our intention. But last in the order of our execution. Okay, we get there last. Now, this is true of every action, any action whatsoever that's, that's done. We know an end and we pursue it. Thomas said sometimes there's some kind of almost subconscious actions, like the scratching of one's beard, he mentions, uh, that, that isn't quite uh, the same. But it, it, any act that's done with intellect and will, this, this applies. Now, what's important is actually to see the bigger picture. There's a lot of actions we do. But there is an ultimate end that we've been made for, which is God. And thus, all of our actions ought to be ordered to that, with the intention of going to heaven and seeing God face to face. That should influence everything we do. And the wise man knows he comes from God and is returning to him, and therefore is able to judge correctly about what to do to get back to God. Okay, and that is the gift of wisdom. Now, we do that through our natural reason, and that's what Boethius talks about here, which does allow us to know God. And yet there's a deeper knowledge that we have, and that comes through faith and through the supernatural uh, gift of wisdom that we receive uh, through the sacraments. Okay? Now, that's the background. Now, we discussed a few questions. Okay, let's actually... Uh, uh, that, that recaps some of the material. I'd actually like to recap even uh, the beginning of, of what we talked about in the text. And so if you still have this, that would be excellent. Uh, if you still have the text from last time. If not, uh, I, I won't try to focus on it unduly because some of you might have forgotten it. Uh, hopefully you have the new text that I distributed today. We'll spend all of our time after the break hopefully on those. But now we see Boethius okay, in his great work. Uh, the Consolation of Philosophy, which was the most widely read work outside of the Bible for a considerable part of the Middle Ages. Okay, you know, Chaucer, Kings, King Henry, even a queen, Elizabeth I, uh, tried to, to write translations of the Consolation into English. It, 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 is, it, is, it is a beautiful work. It's beautiful because it weds the beauty of poetry with the beauty of philosophical reading, uh, writing in prose. And, and these, these two ways of approaching truth are harmoniously contained within the pages of this great work. Now, we see philosophy here, and, which is lady philosophy as wisdom, coming to Boethius, much the same way as wisdom is personified in a female sense uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, in, in the sacred scriptures. And we see that she comes to console him. And we see that there is one characteristic about wisdom that we might not have discussed yet, is that it heals us. It gives us a peace of mind and allows us to see things again in such a way uh, that we do not have to be disturbed by the changing uh, faces of our human experience. Okay, so he is grieving. He is a mess, as we discovered at the beginning of this, crying, uh, and the muses of poetry are, console, are encouraging his melancholy. And Lady Philosophy banishes 
uh, these, these, she has some very choice words, hysterical sluts, etc. Uh, for these, uh, these muses, she banishes this the, from the man's bedside and brings her own muses and songs to comfort him and to bring him back to the knowledge he once knew. Uh, it's a very platonic theme, that, no, that knowledge is in remembering. We see that time and time again in this work. So she calls him to return to himself, uh, to come back uh, to these truths about himself that he once knew, but forgot, given his misfortune. Now his misfortune was that he was a consul uh, of, of a great uh, king uh, of, of Italy, uh, who presided in, in, in the Ostrogoth king, uh, Theodoric, uh, and uh, he was wrongly and unjustly accused of treason and, and, uh, and ultimately sentenced to, de- to die. And so he lost his office, he lost his, uh, he lost his, uh, his fortune, he lost his friends, his leisure to pursue philosophy, and he was bitter about it. And he was sulking in prison, and Lady Philosophy tries to call him back to himself. Now, she reminds him of some very interesting points here. That ultimately, for the just and good man, the only person that can do harm to you is yourself. Now, this seems paradoxical, because people do us harm all the time. But she touches on an important point here, and through some quotes we've read, that there is the inviolable, okay, uh, freedom of our will that cannot be violated by any external agent. And this is important because ultimately our happiness is tied, she'll say, to doing good and to being good. And no external source can cause you to remove yourself okay, from the protections you have within the fortress of the king. Of, of, of ultimately Christ himself. The only person that can cast you into darkness and open you up to harm is yourself. Now, what this presupposes is an understanding of man that is a little bit unique. Man is not just his body, but man is a soul with certain powers, especially an intellect and a will, that are inviolable that cannot be wounded or harmed by any external agent. Now, you might say, that's not true. Our culture does corrupts us. You know, there's a lot of corrupting agents out there. Okay? But think about it. What Boethius is is saying is not that we are not conditioned, but that we are free in response to our conditioning. So... He doesn't, and he won't deny that we are influenced by things outside of ourselves. But we are not slaves of those things, and our will is not in servitude to any external agent. So there may be corruptive influences, but they can't make you do something you do not want to will. They can't make you will something you do not will. Okay, so this may explains the martyrs. This explains why, under threat of of injury and harm and death, harm to their bodies, they did not consent. And thus, who they fundamentally are, which is ultimately for Boethius, a soul, okay, with uh, these these, um, faculties of intellect and will, 
those highest powers of man cannot be wounded or damaged. Other sources can, can try to uh, 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 cast us out from our good, virtuous state of life. But the only time we ever really do that is when we consent. And she reminds him of this, and it's a very important thing to consider. Now here I'm going to get into, uh, and I think uh, as, as we wrap up the first section a little bit of, 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 uh, of this hour, uh, I'd like to actually call to mind something that St. Augustine said that I think illuminates this point. Now, St. Augustine uh, is, is a generation before Boethius. Uh, Boethius lived from 480 to 524. Uh, Augustine dies in 430, and, and he was born in 354. Okay. Okay, and, and I, I just got Boethius wrong. Did I say 480 to 524? I did. I did. So, so, so there we are. And, uh, and, and Augustine uh, died. Uh, in, in 430, being uh, born in 354. So he was before him the first of the great Christian philosophers, who coincidentally, and this is amazing, are buried in the same church in Italy. It's, and, and how that happened is unbelievable. Because you all know that, that, uh, that, that you know, well, Boethius was executed in Italy, you might not all know that, but, but Augustine died in Africa. His remains were taken to Sardinia, the Mediterranean, now part of Italy, and uh, there's Saracen marauders who threatened Sardinia, and his remains were taken to the city of Pavia, P-A-V-I-A, in northern Italy, south of Milan, and buried in the same church where Boethius is buried. Phenomenal. It's, it's San Pietro uh, in d'Oro, which is in the high, the golden heavens. Uh, anyway, but uh, I, I think that's the name of the, the church. Anyway, uh, somewhere you can visit uh, and, and see these men side by side. It's beautiful. Now, uh, what St. Augustine said that affirmed this point, and it's a point affirmed both by Christianity and here by way of philosophy, the nature of the inviolability of the human soul and the dignity of man that is attached to his freedom, the freedom of his soul. Now, I don't know if you remember, in the history of Rome, uh, written by Ovid's history and Livy's history, they both deal with the rape of Lucretia, the story of the rape of Lucretia. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, but basically what happens is there's a noble woman uh, who is raped and then takes her own life. It's a very tragic, horrible story. Uh, but Augustine makes a point of this story. He wants to point out the difference between paganism and Christianity. In paganism, she lost her purity when she was violated. She became impure. And that's why she took her life. She was a defiled person. Augustine makes the point that only one person was defiled by that action, the perpetrator. And because her will did not consent to the evil, her, she, she retained her purity. And, and made the fundamental point that our purity is not tied simply to what happens to us and to our body, but it's in our purity of conscience and our purity of, of action. And what we do with our will, what we consent to and what we don't consent to, that, that, that is to be found our purity and dignity. And this is a point that Lady Philosophy is trying to point out, a point that Augustine pointed out uh, earlier okay, uh, uh, in, in, by, in the city of God. Okay? Now, uh, I think uh, with, uh, let's, let's maybe... Uh, I'm trying to see where we are. We have five minutes, okay, before uh, our break. Thank you. I'm just, uh, I, mean, I, I thought I was going to go through the whole time. I, I thought he was just, 
chipping me out of the whole thing last time. I'm like, oh, I have 20 more minutes, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, but, but um, <clears throat> no, I have another five minutes. This is good. So, so now uh, I think that actually dealt that, that what I just mentioned with the question someone posited last time. Because they, you know, the, the, the person asked a very reasonable question. Like, well, come on. Well, of course we can be corrupted. Of course we can be harmed by other people. We're harmed all the time. But are we harmed in a fundamental and lasting way? And the answer is no, unless we do evil in the most fundamental part of ourselves, ultimately the, the part by which we'll be judged, our moral action, we are the only ones that do harm to ourselves. And it, it's, a profound, it's a profound statement, a statement made by Augustine and now made by Boethius via philosophy and her encouraging him to arrive at these conclusions. Okay? That's the first thing she tries to show him. And she tries then for him to reveal his wound. Okay? And so she can see where he has gone wrong. Okay? And, and just to kind of quote here, this might be nice just on, to kind of tie up what we just talked about. This is on the quote 8, if you, if you have yours, book 1, chapter 5. However, this is Lady Philosophy speaking. It is not simply a case of your having been banished far from your house. You have wandered away from yourself. Or if you prefer to be thought of as having been banished, it is you yourself that have been the instrument of it. Now we're taking accountability here for, our, for ourselves. You know, and, and there's a great quote uh, that, you know, that let's reform the church. You know, let's reform the world and convert the world. And the conversion should start with me. Okay? And, and, and it's important to remember that. Now, you seem to have forgotten the oldest law of our community, that any man who has chosen to make his dwelling there has the sacred right never to be banished. So there can be no fear of exile for any man within its walls and moat. On the other hand, if anyone stops wanting to live there, he automatically stops deserving it. So you can give away things. Things can be taken from you that are temporal, your possessions, your office, uh, these other goods. But the highest goods of our, of our life, of our soul are our true possessions, and our highest possessions, and those are ours, really ours. And she said, and so it's not the sight of this place, this dungeon, which gives me concern, but your own appearance. And it's not the walls of your library with their glass and ivory decoration that I'm looking for, but the seat of your mind. That is the place where I once stored away, not my books, but the thing that makes them have any value, the philosophy they contain. Because Boethius was even attached to him sitting leisurely in his library, studying these high things, this pipe in his mouth, you know, and his cat on his lap, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, with, the, with some brandy, some good brandy at his side. You know, that isn't what it means ultimately to be doing philosophy. To be doing philosophy is to be encountering truth. And you could do that in a dungeon. You could do that with brandy and a cigar. Or you, you, you could do it walking in, in nature, etc. Or just talking to a friend, discussing things. And, and she wanted him to return to the truth. That's what gave him a correct mentality and gave him peace. And he shouldn't have these false attaching to the trappings of wisdom. Okay? Now, I think that's a good stopping point. Okay, now we're going to get into the meat of, of how this text progresses. Very fascinating. And answer these high questions right after the break. So, I'll see you in five minutes.
All right, welcome back. You know, I, I, I heard a few, I heard a couple of jokes that were not my own. Okay, one was, uh, I don't think I can tell you. Uh, it's not made for, for the pu- public ears. Uh, but, but another one I think it is. Yeah, so this is, this, is a, this is one for you, okay? <clears throat> All right, so this, this, this Jewish man <clears throat> is on his, his death face, 80 years old. He's about to expire. He turns to his wife and says, honey, send for the Catholic priest. She's like, come on. You know, you, you, you're going to betray us after, after, after 80 years? What's going on? Oh, well, why, why, why do you want to send for the Catholic priest? And, and he turns to her and said, I'd rather one of them die than one of us. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that could be applied many different ways. Yeah. All right. Now, back to the story of Boethius. Now, here, uh, I, I want to mention one thing before I just dive back into the narrative. Uh, someone brought up something, and I meant, meant to mention this when I talked about uh, St. Augustine, City of God, and the story about Lucretia. Uh, Augustine adds to this discussion in, in a very interesting way. He said, well, in, in the act of her being violated, there is two people, but only one sinner. Okay? Only one person that was defiled, and it was the sinner himself, and, and not her. However, she compounded the tragedy of this when she took her own life. And in effect, she killed an innocent woman. And that's what made it all the more tragic. Now, is that, you know, she wasn't defiled. I mean, it, it, you shouldn't take anyone's life, you know. I mean, uh, there's these, these uh, you, know, you can't murder, you know, the unjust taking of an innocent life is, is unacceptable. And that's exactly what she did. You know, she took the, the life of someone who hadn't committed a crime even. And, and it made the, the whole story and the, the evil of his action compounded and, and, all the, all, and, and added to this, this gross tragedy, which is tragic in, in, a, in a, a sense that's not redemptive. You know, although we have the freedom to redeem certain tragedies uh, by not uh, ourselves uh, assenting to these evils by an act of our will. A very, very profound statement. So, St. Augustine's City of God is great reading. We've all read his confessions. But a City of God, now granted, there's you know, something like 29 volumes, the whole thing. But there's good consolidated editions uh, that will be probably, uh, you know, you can pick up at a local bookstore, uh, especially one that supports uh, uh, our institute. Uh, you know, that would be a good plan. Uh, anyway, so, so take, take a look at that, you know, if you, if you have the time. Now, back to our narrative, okay? Uh, now, we're, we're back to, to Boethius, finishing book one. <laughs> uh, but we'll make, we'll, make, uh, we'll make headway here rapidly. Now, uh, at the bottom of this page, it's the bottom of the second page of, of the text I distributed. Uh, quote number nine. <clears throat> so finally, Lady Philosophy is going to identify, she's discovered the maladies that have afflicted Boethius. So she says, now I know the major cause of your illness. You have forgotten your true nature. And so I have found out in full the reason for your sickness and the way to approach the task of restoring you to health. Okay. Uh, it is because you are confused. This is on the first set of texts, I'm sorry. By loss of memory that you wept and claimed that you had been banished and robbed of all your possessions. And it is because you don't know the end and purpose of all things that you think the wicked and the criminal have power and happiness. Okay? And because you've forgotten the means by which the world is governed, you believe that these ups and downs of fortune happen haphazardly. 
These are grave causes, and they lead not only to illness, but even to death. Thanks, however, to the author of all health. Nature has not quite abandoned you. In your true belief, and he just professed a true belief that God governs the world, this truth, she's going to move from this true conclusion to two true conclusions about all these other topics. And this is a great lesson for us when we're trying to even evangelize. Find a true conclusion that the person you're talking with assents to. And show how that might be incompatible with other things he or she holds. Okay, uh, it's very interesting, just as an example of this, to try to make this practical for you. You know, people will, on one hand, say that they don't believe that there are any moral truths that are absolutely true. I mean, you hear that all the time. Your truth is your truth, especially, but usually what they mean are moral truths that pertain to sexuality. It's usually what they mean, because then, you know, two sentences later, they make all these moral absolutes about environmental issues. You know, and, and, and how these are absolute. And, you know, and, and no one, no matter what culture you're from, you should not do X, Y, or Z. And so you can at least point out, okay, fine. We might disagree about what is morally licit in regards to sexual morality or even in regards to environmental questions, but we both agree that there, is, there are objective moral norms. And then they say, oh. I guess you're right. You know? And then you begin from that point of strength and, and try to see how far you can go. You know, and that's exactly what Lady Philosophy is doing. Okay? And now, once he submitted to that, uh, and so that is our greatest hope of rekindling your health. Moving on to book two. Okay? Now, uh, we're discussing fortune. And here, there's a great discussion of fortune. And basically, fortune governs all those goods that are temporal or changing. These goods can be taken away. And he is bemoaning the fact that his wheel of fortune has turned. And what does Lady Philosophy say? She says, she says we're still on the first one. I'm, I'll, get, I'll get to the second one as soon as I can. I'm sorry. Uh, now, uh, the wheel of fortune turns, you know, and, 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 and some things go, go good, some things go ill. And here, you're bemoaning your fortune. But it's the very nature of fortune to be mutable and to change. Fortune is just being faithful to what it is, who she is, if you speak of Lady Fortune, uh, by, by changing. And so you, she has nothing to apologize for. You know, those temporal goods by nature come and go. That's because they're not eternal goods, they come and go. And so you can't complain when these goods that aren't your possessions by nature leave you. You really don't have a lot to complain about. Okay? And then she says all these, all these statements you know, uh, that, that are so contemporary. I mean, I don't know if, if you struggle with these, or, uh, but I certainly do. Uh, and uh, we, we look at, at uh, quote number 15, uh, book 2, chapter 4. You know, uh, it is the nature of human affairs to be fraught with anxiety. They never perfectly prosper. Okay? There's, there's never a perfect prospering. No one finds it easy to accept the lot that fortune has sent him. You know, the grass is always greener syndrome here. There is something in the case of each of us that escapes the notice of the man who has not experienced it, but causes horror to the man who has it. We, we can't even identify with the pain of others because we're so absorbed in, 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 the, in the, the difficulties of our own life that we can't even, we can't even enter into solidarity with anyone else. And they are never... Uh, 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 and they who have never experienced adversity, that should read, 
uh, actually are in the worst position sometimes because even the slightest whim, uh, they are prostrated by even any minor uh, upset. So trifling are the things that can detract uh, from the complete happiness of a man at the summit of fortune. And so those people who are most fortunate are in a very precarious place because any little change of the wind and they just fall prostrate in misery. You know, you, uh, you think of uh, Paris Hilton. I don't know. You think of uh, you know, being thrown in jail, Lindsay Lohan, or whatever these people are. You know, I mean, uh, you never thought I'd mention that name in a talk on Boethius. But, but, yeah. but yeah, I have students, and so I have to be tapped into pop culture to some extent. You know, but, but it's, it's, it's serviceable. It proves a point. Like, these people are so fragile. You think that they've attained a great happiness? It's perilous. You know, and it's just a stiff wind will blow them over. You know, so this is, is what she's pointing out. Now, fortune, therefore, by its very mutability, and all the goods it governs cannot lead to happiness. And now we go through a litany of these. And it's a wonderful reflection, if you have time to read the book, it's just fascinating, on how wealth, fame, power, honors, and all those temporal goods that are goods uh, can be confused with our ultimate good okay, and our ultimate happiness. And how they never really make a man self-sufficient and happy. Okay, so the discussion of 19 with wealth uh, basically uh, makes the statement that the more you get, all of a sudden you have to get more power to protect your possessions. You know, no one is, is so free from anxiety who doesn't have anything. Because you can't take anything from me if I don't have anything. But once you have a bunch of stuff, you have to guard it. You have to protect it. And that creates anxiety. I have stuff that could be ruined. I've got a nice car, you know, like it's a hailing out. You know, the guy with the, the, the car like mine, you know, it's like, oh, it's hailing out. You know, someone with a nice car, it's hailing out. I've got to protect my car, you know, uh, protect my investment. This is, you know, so they're fraught with anxiety, a little hail, and then they, they go running for, for cover, you know, and I could just happily go down the road, you know. It's really, they, these aren't going to really change that much. You know, just gonna, a few more dents, you know, what's well, a big deal. And so you, know, so you see how wealth can, you know, it, it doesn't really make you happy. It says, once won, this is great, uh, how, how splendid then the blessings of mortal riches. Once won, they never leave you carefree again. You know, it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, what about power? Uh, power, uh, it, it, of course, power corrupts. Uh, and, and, and how powerful are you? What do you have control over? Do you have control over men's minds? Not exactly. Over their wills? No. Uh, you know, maybe over their bodies you can exert some kind of power, uh, but it's always limited. And, and once you have power, you become a target for others who want it. You know, and, and there's so many other reflections. Office. Office is not even a good because it doesn't even make those good who have it. Think about it. You know? I mean, if office made someone good by having it, there wouldn't be any corrupt politicians. You know? <laughs> if anything, it does the opposite. You know, it actually makes you bad. You know? So office is certainly not something to hang your hat on. It can be admitted, associate, admits association with evil men. You know, what about fame? Uh, you know, like Goethe you know, went seeking fame as, as an ultimate end. Someone says, Ponce de Leon, uh, uh, went looking, I think he was interested in fame and also fortune. You know, but now uh, a friend in a song he wrote about that uh, said, and now you know, old people play shuffleboard over his grave. You know? And no one knows who the heck you know, this guy is. Anyway, this is kind of an ironic verse of, of a song my friend wrote that actually won some honors. It's interesting. Anyway, and, and, and so you can see the fleeting 
nature of these particular goods. And so she gets him to focus them. Now, where is the real good that we're seeking? Turn to book three. And, and, and she, she wonders, okay, what do all people seek? And all people, it says, toil at countless enterprises, and by different paths, this is the third page, quote number 25 on the first book, the first, first set still. And though they all try to reach the same goal, happiness, beatitude. Okay, so ultimately, all men seek happiness. They seek it by different roads. Some people choose fame. Some people choose office. Some people choose fortune. Some people choose pleasure. And she mentions that. I don't have any quotes about that. But she speaks about the, the frailty of, of pleasure as satisfying you. Uh, you, know, you think of Hugh Hefner and these individuals, and you, you can see that they're not happy. Uh, but, but she reflects on that as well. Uh, it's very interesting. In any case, we all seek happiness. Well, then what is happiness? Okay. Well, happiness ultimately, okay, she makes the point, and I wish I could spend more time here, that when you have a good, that makes you happy. And ultimately, what will make you perfectly happy is to have a perfect good. And a perfect good will leave you wanting nothing else. It will be completely sufficient in and of itself. Now, all of these other goods do not give you that self-sufficiency, do not give you that unending happiness. And so she prays that we might discover something that will. And there's a great prayer there that we read last time. And finally, uh, that we're finishing this, this set, set of text. It must be admitted, this is number 28, book 3, chapter 10, that the supreme God is, the, is to the highest degree filled with supreme and perfect goodness. But we've agreed that the perfect good is true happiness, so that it follows that true happiness is to be found in the supreme God. Now the argument uh, sh she gives, we don't have time to go into all of its nuances, for the existence of God is, is, is tied to the existence of a perfect good. You know, so she asks and she reasons in, in the following way. And I mentioned this last time. If there, basically, if there's a better, if there are goods that are better than other goods, there has to be a best. There has to be goodness itself. Okay, so we find things that are good, okay, and we find things that are better. But how is something better than something else? Because it has a greater sharing in goodness itself. But all goods are said to be good insofar as they share, to some extent, in goodness itself. And so what do they share? And they share in goodness, perfect goodness. Uh, and, and all things have a sharing in that that makes them good, but none of them are goodness itself. Uh, only goodness itself is perfectly good, and we identify what is perfectly good with God. Now, there's other arguments and things she gives to try to, try to support that, that reasoning, but it seems sufficient to show that there is a perfect good, and this we call God, and it's the origin of all these other goods, and in that good there is nothing lacking. All goods will be contained in that good, so that if we enjoy that good, we will be wanting for nothing. Okay, and then we finish here with this packet. Since, since it's through the possession of happiness that people become happy. And since happiness is in fact divinity, it is clear that it is through the possession of divinity that they become happy. But by the same logic, as men become just through the possession of justice or wise, oh, through the possession of wisdom, so those who possess divinity are necessarily, necessarily become divine. Each happy individual is therefore divine. While only God is so by nature, 
as many as you like may become so by participation. And all this is saying is that as we choose God and order our lives to him and become morally good and morally better and better and better, and ultimately through his grace, we can be transformed completely as we can be made into his likeness. That we really become like God. We don't become God, but we become like God and enter into relationship with him. Okay? And, and, and this relationship then uh, is, is, is the highest end of man and what ultimately makes us happy and good and like God himself. Now, from here, she has to deal with these other very fascinating questions, which I'm going to look at now in an abbreviated way. In book four, okay, we're going to look at uh, this, this, this problem. And I'm going to have to summarize. The, the text is so rich. And even if you don't go out and buy this book... Read through some of these texts, because Boethius says these things uh, you know, in, in such a su- just superior sort of way. It's brilliant the way he writes verse and prose. It's just extraordinary. But the problem is now, okay, fine, God's all good. God governs the world to some extent, fine, but why is there evil? It seems like the evil thrive and, the good, and are unpunished for their evil deeds, and, and, and the good are trampled under feet and trodden upon by the wicked. How, how can that make sense in a universe governed by the good God? It's a good question. Okay? And he wrestles with it throughout this book. Now, in book 4, chapter 2, he has this wonderful conversation with Lady Philosophy. And this has the dialogue form, form of one of a kind of platonic dialogue. And it's beautiful, where you see Lady Philosophy take him from one correct answer to another in a very seamless and beautiful sort of way. She says that, okay, think about this. And she's going to try to show him that the wicked are actually powerless and the good are powerful. Now, there are two things on which the performance of human activity depends, will and power. Okay, if either of them is lacking, there's no activity. That is a desire to do something and the ability to achieve it, okay, is what we're talking about. Okay, now I'm moving to the dialogue. It is obvious, I said, and and cannot be denied. And if you see a man who has done what he wanted, you will hardly doubt that he had the power to do it, will you? No. Okay. Therefore, man's power or ability is to be judged by what they can do, and their weakness by what they can't do. I agree, says Boethius. Do then... Do you then remember how earlier in the argument we reached the conclusion that the instinctive direction of the human will manifested through a variety of pursuits was entirely toward happiness? I remember that this was well proved. And you recall that happiness is the good itself. And similarly, that since they seek happiness, all men desire the good. Not so much recall it as hold it fixed in my mind. So that, without any difference of instinct, all men, good and bad alike, strive to reach the good. In other words, their wills are the same. They all desire goodness, perfect goodness, which is God, ultimately. Now, what distinguishes, then, the good from the bad? It's not what they want. They, both, they all desire perfect goodness. We'll find out what distinguishes them. But surely men become good by acquiring goodness. Yes. So that uh, good men obtain what they are looking for. It seems so. 
But if the wicked obtained what they want, that is goodness, they could not be wicked. No. Since then, both groups want goodness, and one obtains it, and the other doesn't. Surely there can be no doubt of the power of the good and the weakness of the bad. Anyone who, who doubts this, okay, uh, again, is no judge either of reality or the logic of argument. So she ta she's taking him again from something she, they affirmed and showing how it helps him resolve other matters that he struggles with. She shows that everyone desires happiness. But some do good and, and, and move toward it, and others don't. So what's different? Well, one group lacks the power to get there. Now you might say, well, maybe they're just ignorant that God is the good that they should direct their lives to. Well, in the next quote, she addresses that and says, well, what greater impotence is it to have no knowledge about the good that you're made for. That's a profoundly, a state of being profoundly powerless. And what's important here, it's, it's not even about trivial matters that they're powerless. They're powerless to get to the one thing we all want to get to, whereas the good are not, and they're powerful, in respect to getting to that end that we've all been made for. Fascinating. Okay, now I have to paraphrase a little bit because of time constraints, but, but, but this is, is rich. She goes on to say uh, a whole range of supports of this, this kind of reasoning. I wanted to read this beautiful verse, uh, number six on the handout I gave you. It's very beautiful. shows how the king's own will deposed, the enslaver is slaved, and, and actually shows the kind of servitude to their wickedness and to their misery uh, that the wicked experience. It's, it's really outstanding, and so it's, it's worth looking into. Uh, now, there's, there's a bunch of good, good questions, and I wish I had more time for that. But she adds something else that's very interesting. She says, in part, the worst punishment, the, the wicked are always punished. Okay? And, and different quotes deal with this, number eight, uh, eight uh, deals with it, seven and eight both deal with it, with punishment. The punishment of, uh, of the wicked always happens. And in some ways, their punishment is the, their own wickedness, which moves them away from this end that they desire. And the reward of, of a good man is the, his goodness itself. He gets to be good and continue to grow in goodness as he moves towards his end. And so even if the state never punishes someone, someone is punished because they become bad themselves. And that is the greatest punishment. And then she adds a fascinating argument. Okay? She says that then we should still punish people, but with a different mentality. That it's an act of generosity and of healing to punish someone. Because it adds a good onto their evil state of being. And in some ways, an evil person is worse off if they're never punished. Because then they'll never be reformed and never return to the path that leads to their happiness. And they're actually worse off in some sense if they're never punished. Now, they also admit she talks about purgatory and hell here, which is interesting there, too. So she doesn't leave that out. But it's very interesting. There is some truth there. And so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't punish. But it means that punishment is compassionate. It's actually compassionate to punish someone. And you find that with your children. You direct them. It's actually an act of love that directs them, hopefully, back on the right path to their own happiness. And she's making a similar point. And to make this pertinent even to today, okay, I, I read, and I'm not going to take a stance, it's kind of political here, but, but it's, um, I noticed there's just a fallacy of reasoning here. Uh, 
in the, the, they just, the guy who was released, uh, the Lockerbie Scotland bomber, okay, who was released, and, and, and the Scottish people stated that, well, it's better to err on the side of compassion. Okay? Now, if that's the case, well, why didn't they release him five years ago? Because that would even be more compassionate. Or maybe ten years ago, that would be even more compassionate. And, and so it's based on the idea that, that and maybe he should have been released, shouldn't be released, who knows. But it's based on the mentality that punishment isn't compassionate. Okay? And, it's an, and I, think, I think they're wrong. And, and I think on that point, and, 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 and Boethius is tapping into that. Okay? Now, finally, in, sh- in a very short order. Okay, this is going to be crazy. I'm going I'm to deal with the most complex theme of the whole book. Okay, uh, yeah. And that is the reconciliation of divine will and foreknowledge. Okay? How could God know what we're going to do? And we're still free. Think about it, okay? I'm going to make this very simple. Okay, this, this will be interesting. When I see her writing, is it necessary that she's writing? Well, yes and no. I don't make her write, but when she's writing, it's necessary that she's writing. And my knowledge is necessary. It's real knowledge of what's really happening. Okay? Even though I don't make her write, I have necessary knowledge when she is writing, I have necessary knowledge that she is writing. And so in the present tense, when you are doing things freely, I have necessary knowledge if I see you doing them freely. And yet my knowledge does not make you do what you're doing. But it's still necessary knowledge. I still have real knowledge of what you're doing. Now the problem is we try to stuff God into time. But God is outside of time. And so by being eternal, which Boethius defines famously as the full, perfect, simultaneous possession of everlasting life. And, and, and he sees the future. He sees the present. You know, he sees the present and the past. All at once. Because he's outside of time. Now we can't see the, the, the future that way. But because he's outside of time, he can. Now, he can see it just like I can see someone writing. And do, do, does my knowledge, my necessary knowledge of her writing, make her write? No. Does God's necessary knowledge of what he sees that we will do in the future make us do what we're going to do? No. The problem is we try to think that God knows the way that we know. But he knows according to his nature. And just like a, a dog does not know everything about you that I know, about your nature, about the world, so too does God look at the same reality from a higher perspective. And because he is outside of time, he can see the past, present, and future as as present to him. Everything is present to him. And he knows it. And yet it doesn't, just like my knowing her writing in the present doesn't make her right, so too does God, God's knowledge that he sees. And that's why it shouldn't be a foreknowledge. Because for God, it's not in the, in the future. There's no future to God. He's outside of time. So it's more a looking forth than foreknowledge. And so he simply sees events. Some of them happening of necessity and some of things happening freely. And his necessary knowledge of that, that he has through his omniscience, 
does not make us do what we do. And so, so our choices matter, prayers matter, doing good matters. The just are justly rewarded in heaven for their good deeds, and the wicked are justly punished because God sees all. And we'll finish here with this great quote. A great necessity, and this is great, the turn of phrase. Uh, This is the last one, number 23, on the the back page. A great necessity is laid upon you. Not a necessity that makes you do things, but a necessary way we should act, if you will be honest with yourself. A great necessity to be good, since you live in the sight of a judge who sees all things. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Now do you know Boethius? Now do you know why Boethius is a fundamental text in the history of our faith? How many of you coming into this knew who Boethius was, had ever heard his name before? We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.